We've come to the heart of St. Mark's Gospel. We've just had the healing of the deaf and mute man, another multiplication of the loaves, and the gradual healing of the blind man. All those miracles have just taken place. Just after this incident, we will have the transfiguration and more passion predictions. But right here in the center of St. Mark's Gospel, we have Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ. And then we have Jesus teaching that the Christ must suffer, die, and rise after three days. Then we have what's called the cost of discipleship, the invitation for us to take up our crosses as well and follow Christ. That's the context. That's why this is the center of St. Mark's Gospel, because the true identity of Jesus is revealed. Now we hear the interesting term, Son of Man. Many people think that Son of God or Christ is actually a higher title, but it isn't. The highest title ever attributed to Christ and the title that he himself uses the most when he talks about who he is, is actually Son of Man. This term has its origins in Daniel chapter 7, and this is the passage. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. That is why the title Son of Man is the greatest title that Jesus could possibly attribute to himself. And what is the comment that makes the high priest rend his garments right before Jesus is crucified? It's not when he calls himself the Son of God. It's not when he calls himself the Messiah. It's precisely when he takes to himself the title of the Son of Man. When you say, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And at that point, the high priest tears his garments and says he's condemned himself. However, son of man is only part of the equation. This is the vision of the glorification of Christ at the end of time. It includes his resurrection and ascension, but it's only after Christ suffers and dies. Peter doesn't understand this initially. The disciples hear this glorious title, Son of Man, in this everlasting dominion and kingdom and reign, and they just see the glory. They don't see what has to happen first, which is why Jesus takes this exalted title of Son of Man and combines it with the suffering servant of Isaiah, which we heard in our first reading. We hear that this suffering servant will be spat upon, that he'll receive buffets, that those who plucked his beard he freely presents his cheeks to. And later in Isaiah, we'll hear that this suffering servant will be cut off from the land of the living, for he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. All of this prophecy about this suffering servant, that somehow this servant will take on all sin and die and suffer for the sake of sins to be forgiven. Only through this suffering servant will sin be wiped away and the people redeemed. Jesus deliberately combines this title of suffering 
with the exalted and glorified title of Son of Man. Finally, we hear this invitation for each disciple of Christ to take up his cross and follow him. Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World. He wrote this, I believe, in the 1920s, pretty early on. It's a dystopian novel. What happens in the novel is it discusses a society that's very advanced in technology, but they spend their entire existence in leisure with others, whether it's sexual exploits or it's playing games the entire time. There's only one cardinal sin, and that's to be alone and to desire solitude, to desire to be alone. And if anyone's at all sad or depressed, they take a drug called Soma with negative side effects. And this drug immediately puts an end to any sorrow or any desire for something greater than a life filled of eight hours of work followed by unending leisure. And in this dystopia, towards the end, you meet one of the world controllers. Religion, science, and art have almost totally been rejected because those give way to independent thought and are thought dangerous for society. And this is what the world controller says to some of those who begin to experience disquiet in their hearts. He says, you can only be independent of God while you've got youth and prosperity. Thanks to their scientific technology, they're able to have young bodies and minds for the whole of life, which lasts somewhere between 40 and 50 years, and immediately people are killed. They go and die uh, because their bodies have strained far beyond what they should be allowed to do in that youthful state. So by rejecting youth and prosperity as a bad thing, always having eternal youth and eternal prosperity, we don't need God. In addition, God is compatible, excuse me, God is not compatible with machinery and scientific medicine and universal happiness. You must make your choice. Our civilization has chosen machinery and medicine and happiness. Industrial civilization is only possible when there's no self-denial. Nobility and heroism are symptoms of political inefficiency. The picture that Huxley paints is that in order to have a happiness where nobody's disturbed and you continue to live your life, there's no lack of prosperity or pleasure, in order to have that world, you cannot have God. You cannot have self-denial and you cannot have nobility or heroism that threatens the political society. So in order to have a meaningful life with nobility and heroism, avoiding comfort but seeking true meaning and fulfillment, it takes self-denial and it takes true sacrifice. That's why the call of the cross is so meaningful for us today in a society that largely has followed the structure of Huxley's predictions. We have to strive against what's the cultural norm in order to seek true sacrifice, fulfillment, and self-denial. These things are not evident in our civilization. In fact, we avoid them at all costs as a society. And yet those are the very things that give us freedom and independence from 
the things of the world that become addictions so that we can truly seek out the one true God. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever left your phone at home and gone on an errand or to work without your phone? It's frightening. All those things that we get behind on text messages, social media, emails, everything. We, who knows if we missed a call? If I ever leave home and I'm on call and I know I have to go to the hospital, I have to be ready to go, it's, I turn right back around and get the phone. I can't possibly be without my phone. But it's interesting. Try it for a day. Just leave the phone somewhere or even for an hour and see what happens. This civilization that Huxley talks about, it depends the success of society, the success to lull everyone to sleep is absolutely dependent on the drugs we give ourselves. And part of that is constant distraction. Television, media, texts, everything. It's meant to prevent any aspect of loneliness or solitude which is the one sin that's forbidden in this dystopian society. You cannot be alone because in that loneliness you might be confronted that you are not alone in emptiness and that there's actually someone else present, that there might be a God and there might be something worth living for more than constant leisure. That's why solitude is to be shunned no matter what because then people might wake up. Fulton J. Sheen wrote some also prophetic lines along these same thoughts as Huxley had predicted in the 1920s. Now, Fulton Sheen wrote this, the modern world which denies personal guilt and admits only social crimes, which has no place for personal repentance, but only public reforms, has divorced Christ from his cross. There's only society sins. There's no personal conversion because there's no personal sin. And it divorces Christ from his cross. Now, writing at the time of the USSR, he states that communism has chosen the cross without Christ. However, the Western post-Christian civilization has picked up Christ without his cross. But a Christ without a sacrifice that reconciles the world to God is a cheap, feminized, colorless, itinerant preacher who deserves to be praised for the Sermon on the Mount but merits unpopularity for what he said about his divinity on the one hand, divorce, judgment, and hell on the other. His thesis is that while communism has taken cross in suffering and no Christ, We ourselves in the Western world have rejected the cross and cleaved to some image of Christ as just a great teacher who never suffered, but also was never divine. There's never judgment and there's never hell. It's a cleaving to comfort and rejection of all sorts of self-denial and suffering. But here is Fulton J. Sheen's conclusion. It is our belief that Russia will find Christ before the Western world unites Christ with his redemptive cross. That those who cleave to the cross will find Christ and unite him to that cross before we who have rejected the cross will find the true Christ united to his cross. That's his prediction. The great message for us is that in the midst of a life of comfort, 
it's so hard to awaken that spiritual sense, the religious sense within us, that yearning for God, that we're dependent on anything other than ourselves, that that is such a difficult task that it's easier if you just become an atheist, reject Christ, but still suffer, because it's through suffering that we have that awakening. It's a great call to us that all the things that we experience as difficulties and setbacks ought rather to be embraced so that we can truly find Christ within them. And with that, we find the greatest meaning in life, to be able to give what's best in ourselves and lay that down in sacrifice for the best in someone else. True mentorship, true love, true self-gift, it's only found when we unite ourselves to the cross. And as Jesus says, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. The last invitation I want to make to you today is that of prayer. As I mentioned, the greatest sin in Huxley's dystopian civilization is to be alone and to experience solitude. And that's precisely what I ask us to do each and every day. Some have experienced the phenomenon. You might have prayed regularly for a time, but then rejected prayer for whatever reason. Perhaps you come to Mass, perhaps you continue to read Scripture or pray your rosary, but that life of prayer before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament has dissipated. And there's various reasons why that could have happened. One of the primary reasons that I've come across, whether through personal experience or experience with others, is that we reject prayer in solitude with the Lord precisely because we've suffered a trauma And we cannot bring those things to him. Because the divine healer, of course, goes right to those places where it hurts the most in our hearts. And that's where he desires to heal us. Well, that's very painful. And we know he's going to do this. Sometimes it's questions of, why did you permit this to happen, God? If you're all good. Sometimes it's even anger or hatred towards God for our current circumstances. But those are precisely the things that we need to bring to Christ in prayer and solitude. He doesn't just want the best parts of us. He wants our entire selves. Billy Joel has one of my favorite lines in um, music. And he says in one of his songs, You've given me the best of you, but now I need the rest of you. That's a beautiful line for our relationship with the Lord. We give him everything not just our joys and happiness and love, but our anger and our sorrow and any hatred we have in our heart because only then can he actually heal us. So I invite all of us, no matter what we may be experiencing, to seek out Christ in solitude. Commit this capital sin of Huxley's dystopian civilization and find yourself alone with the one true God, the one we're utterly dependent on. And in such a time and such a place, the divine healer can come to our souls and remedy the broken and hurt parts in our hearts so that we can learn to long and yearn for him and him alone. And in such a way, we can live lives of self-denial and sacrifice and actually save our souls through his grace. Only in such a society, such a civilization, can we truly find God. May we defy the predictions of Huxley and Fulton J. Sheen and sooner find the cross 
and unite him to Christ than any society who just cleaves to the cross.